Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me for another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. Today, our guest is a specialist in treating eating disorders in young people in particular. So I thought it would be extremely helpful to have her on to talk to us about how we create an environment that protects children from developing eating disorders and how we make sure that we don't bring diet culture into the classroom because it is unscientific, it is harmful, and we only want to help our children, not damage them in any way. This is a very interesting episode. Let's jump right in. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. Libby, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I am really excited about really stressing the health at every size approach at the start of this year, because I know so many people are thinking about restriction and thinking about their body in negative ways at this time of year, more maybe than any other time of year. Mm-hmm. And I particularly wanted to speak to you because of how familiar you are with education and how disordered eating occurs. And since you train people on how to best serve young people when it comes to how we talk about food, I thought you'd be a great resource for my audience since most of us are required to do some kind of nutrition education with our kids. Of course, it depends on your position, but it really falls on a lot of different kinds of positions. So not everyone who goes out and does nutrition ed has a background in nutrition and dietetics, and not everyone who does it thinks about diet culture the way that we do. So I just thought having an expert come in would be the thing to do. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about all of this. So So, it bothers me so much. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I'm starting to feel like some of my episodes should come with a trigger warning, but um, it's interesting to me how many people who don't live and breathe nutrition, who haven't really heard what diet culture is, and definitely haven't started to think about, are we mixing this in with the legitimate educational tools we offer Mm -hmm. our children? Because the whole goal is to give these kids the tools they need to have a great life, to get out into the world and do all the things that they're meant to do. So we definitely don't want to accidentally harm them while we're trying to protect them and set them up for success. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to this specialized skill set? Because I know not all dietitians have gotten to the point that they are taking a haze approach. So how did your nutrition journey begin? Oh, uh, I'm going to give you the short version because it's going to be a long conversation. Because um, I actually started college pre-veterinary medicine. Uh, and actually, because of my own disordered eating, got really obsessed with nutrition. and was like, oh, there's a job doing this and switched into the nutrition major. Um, and again, long story short, by the end of college, I pretty much overcome the eating disorder primarily through having 
just really great education around nutrition and how our bodies use food and chemistry of how all the molecules break down and just really wonderful teachers telling me that you know, sugar is not evil and that you need this many calories to survive. So I had a, a really good foundation because of the great educators that surrounded me. I know not everyone has that experience. And actually now in private practice, a lot of my clients are nutrition students in college. I took classes on this and there was no real statistics on percentage of nutrition majors with eating disorders, but we're expecting it's higher than the average population. So yeah, uh, we all kind of get into that. But how I got into uh, believing in the Hayes approach and, and really using that, and I'm assuming you've talked about kind of health at every size and other episodes and what yeah. that is. Well, in case people have missed those, can you define what Hayes is from your perspective? Yes. Um, and I'm going to start with, I am not the expert on this part of it because I haven't even finished reading the book yet, so, but this is how <laughs> I understand it and why I like it. Um, and I'll, I'll also explain how I got into it. So Hayes or health at every size is a, a trademarked term name philosophy. It essentially boils down to there, there's different principles to it, but it, it boils down to that you can and ultimately should take care of your body and your health, regardless of what size you are. Uh, when I was first learning about this, I was thinking, oh, it's, it means healthy at every size. So someone's healthy at every size. And that really turned me off of it for a while. And I think that's how a lot of people come into hearing about health at every size and thinking that, you know, if someone's 50 pounds or 500 pounds, that they can be healthy. And that's where I think it's not necessarily true, but the difference is in what it really is, is that you can be taking care of your health, no matter your size. So if you're 50 pounds or 500 pounds, you can take care of your body and your health. And that changing your weight is not necessarily, or is not the most important part of this, uh, that you can have better health without losing weight, without changing your body. And if your weight changes, it changes, but that's, you know, you can, you know, reduce your, you know, hemoglobin A1C for diabetics without even losing weight just by making different changes in how you take care of yourself. You can really take care of a whole host of diseases and mental health issues without changing your weight or having that be something that's impacting it. And that's when I really got on board with it is like, oh, I totally believe everyone is worthy where they're at and that they can take care of themselves. Like you don't need to get to a certain size to start taking care of yourself because right. why? <laughs> right, right. And what I like about Linda Big, I like the first book, but in the second one, Body Respect, there's even more of a focus on kind of the social justice implications and the inequities mm -hmm. when it comes to health that are tied to being in a larger body. And really every dietitian knows whether or not we fully want to embrace this fact that there is no surefire way for anyone to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And there's no uh, evidence-based surefire way for people to manage their weight. We still have not found what a successful weight loss intervention looks like. And I think that's because it doesn't exist. And it's the attempt to control weight that leads us to larger and larger <laughs> numbers on the scale and that it does a lot of 
other damage too. But instead of just accepting, hey, diets really never work. Mm -hmm. And there's no scientific diet that we can endorse. There are eating styles that we can endorse. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But we cannot guarantee weight loss with any of those things. And that focus on weight loss detracts from the pursuit of health. So for evidence-based practitioners, why would we be pushing something that we know there's no research to support that there is an intervention for that? Oh, I love the way you said that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because I talk with, you know, a lot of people and even dietitians that are, you know, still trying to, you know, help people lose weight. And I get clients coming to me in my private practice that are like, hey, I, you know, my doctor said I need to lose 20 pounds. Can you help me? And I'm like, no. (laughs) And here's why. Could we theoretically get the weight off you? Sure. But how is your life going to change? And how do you know that weight's not going to come back on and then some, you know? And why is your doctor telling you you need to lose weight? What's really going on there? Because most of the time it has nothing to do with the weight. Right. It's so interesting because I've been told by people who come to me, not necessarily wanting to lose weight, but wanting to do something for their health related to diet, Mm -hmm. who have gone to the doctor for something so obviously unrelated to weight, like like the flu. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And the doctor doesn't treat their flu, but tries to talk to them about weight loss. So obviously there's something wrong with our fixation with weight if it stops people from getting the medical care they've paid for and deserve, you know? So I know personally, I always get uh, triggered when I think about how long my Graves' disease went undiagnosed. Mm. And when I was in the upswing with the weight, that's suddenly all they could talk about. Even though the symptoms were present the whole time, it was like the bigger I got, the lower my chances of ever getting a diagnose, diagnosis became. Yeah. Which I was just like, well, this is bogus. I'm going to need all those copays back. Um, because, yeah. And I need for people to be aware of their own biases. We all have them. Mm-hmm. But what do you tell people who are trying to serve a population? Like in school nutrition, we're trying to serve yeah. impressionable young people. What happens if we are not aware of our biases? And what do you tell people who do nutrition ed about the impact they can have? Oh, yeah. I hear all these stories. You know, I'm in some like mom groups online and just from what I hear in the different settings I've been into of what the kids are getting told at school, whether as a class assignment or something they hear in the lunchroom or PE class or whatever it is. And it's like, are you kidding? Like there's adults telling kids this, this is totally setting them up for an eating disorder later in life. And it's, you know, things like uh, a lot of the schools have the, you know, lunch rooms that, you know, I understand with like allergies, a lot of them are not doing peanuts or whatever, but some are like, you know, they have like their red list of foods. Like, you, you know, if your kid brings uh, you know, a piece of cake and it's lunch, like, oh my God, alert the media, you know, this is the worst thing ever. And it totally goes against this idea of, you know, eating intuitively and teaching your kids that it's okay to eat all foods. And if you include them when you want them, you're not going to binge on them. And I think there's such a great fear for a lot of people who haven't really looked at the evidence 
science-based science around this that, oh my gosh, if we give our kids sugar, they're going to become addicted to sugar and then they're going to just binge eat and they're going to become fat and then their life is going to suck. And, you know, it's like, wow, where, how do we snowball all of this from like one piece of cake? So I think a lot of the messaging really needs to shift around that of social justice issue, like you were talking about and how thin privilege has become such a big issue in not only our country, but a lot of the world in that people seeing, you know, other people in larger bodies automatically stereotype them and label them as lazy or unhealthy or unactive or, you know, all these other things that they're you know, most likely not. And someone who is thin or fit looking is like, oh, they must work out all the time and they must be really on top of it. And they could be the laziest person ever. You know, like, um, so it doesn't, what our body looks like is not necessarily a f- reflection of what we're, we're doing with it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that like, you mentioned uh, the, the privilege aspect because yeah. that's a term that we're all hearing more of. And some people get like, eh, they get very, uh, what is that? They're very fragile mm-hmm. when it comes to the assertion that maybe they're enjoying a privilege that someone else isn't. But if you are in any kind of privileged group of people mm-hmm. or a group that's receiving privileges that others are not, you are not wrong for having that. What's yeah. wrong is that everybody doesn't have access to it. Yeah. So it isn't to condemn the people who are having an easier time at life And it certainly doesn't mean we're trying to say if you are part of the majority that's currently more acceptable than other people, that your life is super easy. Everybody's life is hard. But the Mm -hmm. truth of the matter is um, there are a lot of people in marginalized groups that jump through hoops that the rest of us don't have to jump through. And I was recently at a conference with someone who identifies as being in a larger body. And I, you know, I feel like I am too. But I don't need a special seat when I go out. I don't need extra room at the booth. And I hadn't thought about that. And that's me, basically medium fat or small fat privilege that I don't need special seats. And so I don't think about that. I mean, if you're a paying customer and so much of the country is larger now, what's up with the seating? Why can't we get some inclusive seating? What do you think it feels like for someone to have to ask for a different seat, you know, Mm -hmm. and then there's so many factors that play into why someone's body may become larger. A lot of times it's part of a larger health condition, but because we've moralized eating well Mm -hmm. and demonized being heavy, instead of us thinking like, oh, we should accommodate this person because they're paying customer and body size isn't something that anyone has direct control over. It's like, no, you just shouldn't be that size. Your body is wrong. And so now you got to beg for a seat while all your friends are seated because Mm -hmm. all of, they all forgot that there wasn't a seat for you. You know, it's just, it's kind of a mess. And so I understand because people want their kids to have an easy time they may be fat phobic because they don't want their kids not to have access to anything. But I would say that's like saying, Oh, this is so awful. You mentioned before the, before the call you saw had a background in WIC. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that sometimes we were advised to tell people to discourage them from overfeeding their children is that people who are 
uh, heavier are subject to bullying. So instead of allowing your child to be heavy, you need to restrict their eating so that they won't be bullied. Mm -hmm. When to me, there's a larger issue there of bullying and allowing children. Yeah, we're working on that. Hello. Yes. I'm like, I think we're focusing on the wrong thing here. And the funny thing was I I have seen people overfeed their children. And when I say overfeed, Mm -hmm. I mean, the baby is showing you they don't want anymore and you're force feeding them. Okay. That's wrong. But teaching people to be afraid of allowing their child to graze throughout the day on the food that you put out Oh my goodness. There's no reason to be afraid of that. Yes. Oh, this brings up so many topics I want to talk about. I think the first one being, and this is something, you know, really for the educators to understand is the idea of how restriction or deprivation of food, whether it's calorie restriction or don't eat that, or these are bad foods or however someone's phrasing it, that is setting the kid up to binge. And so something I teach pretty much all of my clients is this binge restrict cycle. And it's the the way that most people actually do end up gaining more weight than they naturally would is tell someone they can't have something. And it's like saying, you know, don't think of a white elephant. You automatically think of a white elephant. So, you know, don't eat, you know, sugar. Oh, what do you want? Sugar, (laughs) you know, especially if it's self-imposed, I think it's almost worse because like, oh, I can't have that. I'm not going to eat that. And then our willpower runs out or if it's a kid and a parent's imposing it and they're saying, oh, I'm, you know, never allowed to eat McDonald's. And then their friends go out for McDonald's. They're going to try to eat all the fries (laughs) rather than eating just enough to be satisfied and enjoy them. Uh, It's really creating this dynamic of feeling hungry and deprived. And then when you get access to it, overdoing it, and then feeling guilt or shame, whether that's self-imposed or the adults putting it on the kids. And then you you get back into the need to do better or go on a diet or, you know, see how bad this was. You binged on it. You should never have this again. And that's just creating this horrible cycle. Yeah. And I love the way you explain that, that if you say, don't think of dot, 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 that's what you think of. Because when you said white elephant, that is the image that appeared in everyone's head, like immediately. So how do you teach healthful habits in a way that doesn't set the children up for a binge Mm -hmm. or weight cycling? Yeah. I think it is really where all foods need to be allowed. And that doesn't mean they need to be, you know, presented every day. And this can lead into a whole nother discussion on you know, division of responsibility in child feeding, uh, a lot of Ellen Satter's work, and we can talk about that. But, you know, putting, allowing whatever foods and, you know, not trying to categorize them as good and bad or healthy and unhealthy, it doesn't mean that you're going to just, you know, eat Snicker bars all day long. Uh, But if you allow them every now and then you're not constantly thinking about it because it's something you can't have. And so when you do get access to them, it's, you know, I could have one of those tomorrow. I'm not feeling like it right now. So I don't need to eat one. It takes the edge and urgency off of the foods if they're always available. Right. Right. And I really like uh, the competent feeding model. I'll include that resource for people because the information is all still true that the adult is responsible for what's available, not quantity and not 
frequency of feeding, that mm-hmm. that is something that you want a child to learn to decide on their own with internal cues, because the chances of someone not being able to self-regulate so extremely low. And you know, in a public health setting, you don't give messages thinking of one or two people. You're mm-hmm. supposed to be giving messages for the general healthy population. Yeah. So in the general healthy population, everyone can self-regulate their feeding. So that is really what we should have as our baseline assumption that remove the restriction. And when you're done, you'll be able to stop. I know people who keep candy available in the house, they may not fill a container because there are some psychological things that happen when you have like overflowing containers of things, but the presence of it kind of takes away its appeal. It's less special. And if you Mm -hmm. want it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, just to follow up on this, a great example, uh, something that my parents did really well raising me, it, it was how my parents approached Halloween candy when I was a kid, you know, go out trick or treating and you get your bag of candy. So I got to put my candy in a Tupperware with my name on it and no one else could touch it. So I could eat that candy as fast or as slow as I wanted, but I knew no one else was going to touch my candy. So I could, you know, I'd eat, you know, a fair amount the first day, like most kids do, but then knowing that it was going to be there for me, there was zero urgency to finish it. And it would be like nine months later and I still have Halloween candy. And this is when I was like, you know, 10. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) It's totally self-regulation. If it's something that, you know, can be there tomorrow. And, you know, even as adults, um, I'm going to share another personal story. So when I uh, first got married and moved in with my husband, I had been used to, you know, always having my own food. When I had roommates, we would buy our separate food and, you know, we didn't touch each other's food without asking and all that stuff. And all of a sudden I was thrown into the situation where we were sharing food and I was so not used to this. <laughs> and I had this example and I actually put it in the book that I wrote. So shameless plug, my book is permission to eat. And so we bought this pumpkin pie and it was a, you know, a good pumpkin pie. And I had a slice of it and going off my own hunger cues, that slice was very satisfying. And I was very happy with that. And uh, my husband and I were on very different work shifts. So I wake up the next morning and like half the pie is gone. And like, he doesn't have a binge eating issue. He just is a hungry man. And I think that was his dinner or something. But I'm like, oh my gosh, like we're going to run out of pie. And so I ate a huge slice of pie. And then like before he got home from work, I had another huge slice of pie. So I'm like, I want this pie while it's still here. And like, so then, you know, he gets home and he has like the last slice or something. And so then I go and get another pie. And I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to let him eat it all again. And so like, is this kept happening for a little bit? And then I'm like, Oh, like I can just buy another pie. Yes. I don't need to like eat the <laughs> amount. Like this is so dumb. Like I can get another pie. I don't need to stuff myself because it's going to be gone. You know? I um, mean, it's just so funny because feeding is such a primal thing that we do a lot of it on autopilot and you don't look at that. Like you may not break it down and be like, Oh yeah, I could get a pie whenever I want, I don't have to compete for food. But I had basically that experience, but being raised with two other siblings, and we didn't have that division of your food is your food. And the rule in our house, oh, that's pretty (laughs) awesome. Yeah. (laughs) I figured figured the uh, only child was living it up. We always suspected. But uh, my parents had said, you know, if you 
need seconds, you just ask for it. And whoever finishes first would be that person who would get them. So you had to finish first and you had to eat your seconds, whether or not you wanted them, if you wanted to beat the other two to the food. Mm. So, and I don't think my parents really noticed how we felt like we were competing for food. Okay. And, and we really didn't need to, but that was the ambiance. Like my mom had said, Hey, this is what I made. And I'm not going back to the drawing board for you guys. You're probably mm-hmm. not even really hungry. Or if you are, you can have an apple. Well, I don't want an apple. I want a second of the entree. So mm-hmm. now I have to whoop it down. And it was such an ingrained habit that now that my siblings and I don't live together, we've had people make comments like, nobody's going to take it from you because we're really eating mm-hmm. super fast. And I'm like, how do I know that? You know, my subconscious yeah. thinks that somebody is going to take it from me and I have to finish first or I don't get my seconds. So yeah. it's really taken a while. It's all about self-awareness. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I don't ever have to worry about competing for food now. So I really have to tell myself that everything is fine, but it influenced the way that we all eat. Like everybody's got issues with binge eating because mm-hmm. of that scarcity mindset that was developed in childhood. Yeah. So childhood habits, what we're teaching the kids now, whether it's in your home or in your school or other settings, community centers, daycares, after school programs, summer camps, everyone is really making an impact on how these kids are going to eat for the rest of their lives. Because even when we know better as an adult, it's still hard to change those ingrained habits because they're habits and habits are hard to break or change. Right. How do people end up falling into developing a full-blown eating disorder? What seems to be the commonality between people who have eating disorders in, in general? Eating disorders develop for uh, a myriad of reasons, but there's a couple different pieces to it. So there is a genetic component and then an environmental component. So you do have to have the genes for an eating disorder to develop, a full-blown one anyway. And then the best way I've heard it Genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So you could have the genes, but never have the environmental need to express the eating disorder behaviors. Uh, So the way I describe an eating disorder is that it's a mental health illness that manifests as behavioral eating, feeding issues that can develop into physical medical complications. So it's incredibly multifaceted, which is why they're usually treated with a team of professionals, a dietitian, a therapist, a medical professional, sometimes a psychiatrist. And I find that most people are using food, whether it's too much, too little, um, trying to compensate and get rid of it through a variety of means, or just trying to control what they're eating, you know, like the, you know, really clean eating or, you know, diets gone to extremes. It it's a coping mechanism for something else that's going on in their life. And whether that is a prior trauma that they're trying to suppress, or it's something more recent, like a conversation they're avoiding having with someone or a relationship that they're in that they want to numb out from. A lot of times the eating disorders that I see, it's people trying to kind of check out or numb out from having to think about or actually deal with a problem. Mm. So they're using food as something to focus on. And whether that's how long can I go without eating, 
when can I go to the store and buy all my favorite binge foods and then just sit and eat them till I don't feel anymore? You know, eating a bunch of food and then bringing it back up as a means of release and control, hopping on the treadmill for three hours and trying to burn it off as, you know, trying to like fix their body as a means of controlling their environment when they feel out of control in other ways. Those are all like the main things I see happening. What are some ways that adults contribute to creating an environment that is going to push someone to express their eating disorder tendency? Anything that's uh, interfering with, number one, that self-regulation that we were talking about. So not being able to trust their body to say when they're hungry and full. Uh, If that habit comes in early, you're going to have people that don't understand their hunger and fullness cues, which can throw a lot of that off. Anything that has to do with feelings of belonging, self-worth, shame about their body or appearance, or if someone is already prone to be more perfectionist and then you have an adult that's putting a lot of pressure on them, it might, this could be like, oh, I'm expected to get straight A's in school and this is really hard for me, but I maybe I can also make my body look the best it can. So they can't also get down on me about that. Uh, If someone was giving those messages that, you know, it's bad to be overweight or your life is going to be miserable or parents or doctors or other kids saying, oh, you know, you need to lose weight or you shouldn't eat that. Those messages, even if they're said jokingly or with great care in mind, oh, you know, I don't want someone to go through what I did being an overweight person kind of, you know, it comes from a place of love, but it's really instilling that message that if you become overweight, this is a problem. It either stems them into binging. So, oh my gosh, I'm already so worthless. Why does it matter? No one's going to love me anyway. Or it becomes an over-control problem and they're trying to eat as little as possible. So it's going to backfire one way or the other. Uh, so really talking to kids and building them up in ways that have nothing to do with appearance, I think is super important. So, you know, praising them for how they relate to people, to their personality, um, to their efforts, to their acts of kindness. So there's a whole list of things you can compliment people on that have nothing to do with appearance or even success. I think a lot of the time, competitive nature and there's a place for competition. And of course we want kids to get good grades. We should try to learn and enjoy that, but uh, there's a a place for non-perfectionism as well. Well said. And I think too, sometimes when people are too focused on the outcome that you can't enjoy the process Mm -hmm. and because we cannot control everything in life, focusing on the outcome is really a good way to, uh, (laughs) enhance your misery as a human being. So if you can focus on learning to enjoy the process of learning and being curious and all about discovery, I think that's more helpful for kids definitely when it comes to what type of learning mindset do you want. And people like that are more likely to be interested in learning all their lives versus people who are like, oh, I'm not getting a grade for this, so who cares? And I kind of find the same thing when people are so focused on Weight management is the only reason to move my body. Weight management is the Mm -hmm. only reason to try uh, to eat a variety of vegetables. When they are focused on that end goal, 
they don't see the pleasure or the joy in the process of those other things and they completely abandon them when it's really more important to learn to enjoy those habits than to focus on any outcome. You do it for the sake of doing it. And one thing I like that I see some people doing already in nutrition education, especially with smaller kids, you do it because it's fun. You eat well because it makes you feel good. You cook because it's fun. You play because it's fun. We don't call it exercise. We call it play. But it's like at some point as people get older, doing something simply because it's pleasurable suddenly loses its value to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that pleasure should always have a place when it comes to health maintenance. Because if you do something because you love it, you will continue to do it your whole life. Mm -hmm. But if you do it because it's an obligation or it's a should, it's not going to last when other things come up in your life that stress you out or would take a higher priority to doing something that seems like an optional obligation versus something that has just become part of who you are. Because movement is normal and should be part of your life. And also eating a variety of fruits and vegetables is just a normal thing yeah. to do. Like, why can't we frame it that way? Yeah. And it can be fun. Uh, and I've, you know, some, Oh, so many more topics I want to talk about, uh, but you know, some other things that I've seen go really well in schools and there's been a lot of research on is with, especially the fruits and vegetables in the cafeteria, labeling them, especially for the younger kids as fun things. The one that always comes to mind is like the um, dinosaur trees for the broccoli and you know, making them fun words and eating, especially if you're the adult around these kids, eating the foods and enjoying them and not saying things like, oh, you need to finish your vegetables so you can have your dessert. Because that, that totally puts the dessert on a pedestal when it's like, yum, these vegetables are so good. What ones are your favorite? That's going to get them far more engaged in that. Absolutely. It's that positive framing. Yeah. So it's easier. I think maybe if we could just all remember to focus on what we want them to do, not what we don't want them to do. Just don't even bring that stuff up. Yeah. Yes. Modeling (laughs) good behavior. (laughs) Exactly. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be important for people to try at least a little bit to work on their own food issues before Mm -hmm. they go out and talk to somebody else about food. And if you don't trust yourself, maybe make sure you have it outlined (laughs) that you really thought about beforehand. What is your objective? What's the lesson objective and what types of language would not be helpful? But sometimes people will um, accidentally set you up for saying something damaging Mm -hmm. by asking for information. Kids already have all these thoughts about what is good, what is bad, and everybody wants to be good. Well, Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people want to be good. (laughs) And so they may ask you like, oh, is this good for me? Is this bad for me? And you really need to pause and think about giving an answer that's based on evidence. And if you don't feel like you know what the evidence says, you can say you'll get back to them. I mean, if it's a really little kid, they'll probably completely forget about it. But if it's somebody else, you you will just check and get with somebody else and get that information to them or pass it on to the teacher and have them bring it up later if you were just visiting for one day or something. Yeah. And I mean, I do this with my college students too. I, I teach college classes and they'll ask questions and be like, 
uh, I don't want to give you the wrong information about that. Let me get back to you. And maybe it's something that we look up together in class. And sometimes it's something where I need to go home and dig through some articles and figure out what the answer is and bring it back to them. Yeah. And we're under no obligation to have every single answer. Exactly. We're, <laughs> we're all humans. Um, and yeah, we're, we're not meant to know everything. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming on. I think this is going to be really helpful. One other thing I wanted to caution people against doing um, in any setting, but specifically in schools and with impressionable children is anything that has to do with like food or calorie tracking, especially if you are not like the individual dietitian or doctor, there is no reason that you need to be asking the kid to track that stuff. And it's, it's really setting them up to, again, think of food in terms of numbers and good and bad and all, all of these like data points that we don't really need to thrive. People have been eating for thousands of years and survived, we're here. <laughs> and we didn't really get a lot of this, uh, you know, numbers and data until really recently in history. I think it was the 1990s is when the US had mandatory food labeling laws in terms of calories and all those specific numbers you're seeing on the back of packages. But before that, people were just eating. So why do we need to start tracking this and getting this into kids' minds at such a young age? I'm seeing kids with Fitbits on and stuff. I'm like, no, just let them play. It goes for adults too. Choosing what actually brings you joy and being okay with taking time off and not doing the same thing all the time. Like Absolutely. I always tell people sports have seasons for a reason. There needs to be downtime. It's okay to change up your types of activity, not do the same thing every day. It's actually better for your body. That's a really good point. And I've noticed that for most people, the tracking is not sustainable, which is why all the wearables become more and more hands off. So you mm -hmm. can just look at the data when you have time mm -hmm. versus you having to always initiate the tracking or in some way interact with it. Because if you have anything going on in your life, you don't need one more thing to keep up with. I honestly yeah. don't know who is able to be consistent. If you have family obligations and a full-time job and anything else, that's usually plenty. That are really consistent with it. Yeah. Oh <laughs> my goodness. Focus. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm getting people off those trackers all the time because it's like, this is taking up your entire life. You can't have a social life and Keep track of all of this stuff. You can't excel at whatever you're doing, school or work or whatever, or a relationship, anything in life, because your whole life is around, did I log everything that I ate today? Did I measure that food? When am I going to eat again? You know, did I get my steps in? You know, all that stuff. And it just, it clogs up the brain. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I certainly think the pursuit of joy is a big part of keeping yourself well, because wellness isn't just one factor, it's multifactorial and having an active social life and feeling connected to other people and being able to feel like you have some kind of outlet that is just for you are all crucial in maintaining your mental health. And that ties directly into your physical health. And Focusing on just one thing that we think we can control is not helpful. Absolutely. Love it. So where can we find your book? Where can we find you online? My website and business name is notyouraveragenutritionist.com. 
And that was because no one can spell dietitian. So <laughs> nutrition. Good call. I realized yeah. that later. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My husband came up with that name for me. And then uh, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Dietitian Libby. And that is B-I-E-T-I-T-I-A-N, Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. <laughs> uh, and my book is Permission to Eat, A Practical Guide to Working Yourself Out of an Eating Disorder During College While Celebrating the Awesomeness That Is You. And it's available on Amazon. And it's not just for college students. That was really my target. But people of all ages have been reading it and finding it really helpful. So uh, I hope yeah. that more people will find it helpful as well. Excellent. Again, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I hope today's episode leaves you feeling encouraged, not discouraged. There are a lot of good resources out there to help us sort through our assumptions about diet culture and about restriction and demonizing foods. In the month of January, I'm going to have a series dedicated to looking at the health at every size approach and sustainable health promoting behaviors. The beginning of the year is typically a time that a lot of us fall into the dieting trap. I'm going to go into more detail about how that can be harmful and what you can do instead. This episode was sponsored in part by Stitcher Premium. If you listen to podcasts as much as I do, which is pretty much nonstop, it's really fun to enjoy podcasts without any interruptions. That's what you can do with Stitcher Premium. All your favorite shows are there, including this one, and shows like Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. If you visit stitcherpremium.com and use school nutrition as your code, and you will get one month of free access. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the School Nutrition Dietitian. Woo!